Welcome to the QAV podcast. My name is Cameron. This is a weekly investing podcast where I chat with my friend Tony. Tony's a very successful investor. He's been doing it for about 30 years. His returns on average are about double the market over that period of time. And he's able to get those returns because he developed a system of value investing that we call QAV, quality at value. How do you find good quality companies and how do you buy them at a discount to their intrinsic value? It's basically a scoring system. We look at the fundamentals of the companies and that's what we teach our club members. Uh, In terms of the podcast, we have a free episode each week, goes for about half an hour. That's what you're listening to now. We have a longer episode, usually goes for an hour to an hour and a half. And I'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode. Anyway, let's get into this week's show. One, two, three, go. The famous Bush Cassidy Cassidy line. Really? Remember that from Butch and Sundance? No. Uh, I think it was Richard Keel, the guy who played Jaws in the Bond movies. It wasn't him. It was Mm. another big, big bad guy. Challenges Mm. Paul Newman to a fight. Newman's about half his size. And he goes, well, if we're going to fight, someone needs to say one, two, three, go. And Redford says, one, two, three, go, and Newman hits him in the nuts straight away. <laughs> That's the end of the fight. It's <laughs> uh, good. Welcome back to the bullshit. No, uh, QAV. <laughs> <laughs> the never-ending <What's>... podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Ray and I do that all the time. I'll be sitting down and be like, welcome to the, what are we doing? <laughs> what show is this? <laughs> it is the never-ending podcast. In fact, that's. My son Hunter's been telling me for months I should just combine all of my podcasts into the Cameron Riley show and just and just do it's just all, you know, just me talking about stuff. Right. And bring bring a co-host on as a guest. Well, basically, I have different co-hosts for different topics, but it's just, yeah. you know. He said, because I don't want to subscribe. He said, no one wants to subscribe to four or five different shows. If they're listening to you, it's probably because they like you and they're interested in what you're interested in. So just let them listen to you and you talk about whatever you're talking about and they'll just go along for the ride. You could do what Kramer did. You could put the Merv Griffin set in your lounge room. (laughs) My God, I just watched that episode like (laughs) two days ago. Yeah, I watched it on the weekend. It's a great episode. Yeah, It is a great episode. Yeah, I was... I was cleaning up, doing dishes or something, and I was, uh, and it, it it was in the thing. I said, "Oh, this is a great one. Got to watch this." <laughs> it is a great episode. Oh, well, anyway, welcome back to QAV episode seven oh nine, twenty seventh of February two thousand and twenty four. Warren Buffett's annual letter to shareholders came out this week. Tony, it's always, I mean, a little bit, a little bit bittersweet this time because mm. he had to do the. We well, didn't have to, but he did the big tribute. To Charlie Munger, I thought that was a nice touch. It was lovely, lovely, mm. and um, I've got. I thought we'd start maybe with our highlights from yeah. Warren's and after two, after two hours, we can do the podcast regular podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's e- easy easy content when Warren writes a letter. Oh, it's, um, it's a late Christmas present, isn't it? It really is, and it never ceases to amaze me. Just how much I enjoy it and how much good stuff there is. He's so easy with the, you know, the wit and wisdom. Um, Yeah. So, of course, he opened with his uh, tribute to Charlie where he basically gives Charlie all of the credit for Berkshire Hathaway being what it is today, which, you know, isn't news. He's always done that, but he reaffirmed that as uh, Charlie's gone. 
Um, I think t- towards the end of his tribute, I've got this bit. He said, in the physical world, great buildings are linked to their architect, while those who had poured the concrete or installed the windows are soon forgotten. Berkshire has become a great company. Though I have long been in charge of the construction crew, Charlie should forever be credited with being the architect. Beautiful. Yeah, it's a great sentiment, isn't it? And it's typical yeah. of Warren not taking credit, calling himself the window installer, Charlie the yeah. architect. <laughs> <laughs> and if I can just chip in with mine too from that same page, and and if um, people have probably read this or they've gone to the site, the the normal Berkshire Hathaway letter starts after the homage to Charlie and the homage to Charlie's in bold font and larger font, and it's it's a real tribute. Um my my take on that was just before yours. Charlie never sought to take credit for his role as creator, but instead let me take the bows and receive the accolades. In a way, his relationship with me was part older brother, part loving father. Even when he knew he was right, he gave me the reins. And when I blundered, he never, never reminded me of my mistake. Such a sweet relationship those guys had. Yeah. And, you know. I remember. Like, sorry. Well, oh, I talk about never fighting as well over what sixty. That's years what I was going to say. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah, I think that was in um, the last wit and wisdom of right. Charlie that I read, which you know Warren's bit in that he probably wrote twenty years ago. But he was saying they'd never had an argument, never had a fight in all the time that they'd worked together. Disagreed on stuff, but never had an argument, never had a fight. So yeah, really special relationship. Yeah, well, I don't think we've had a fight, have we, Cam? No, well, twelve but- years. No, but we don't work as closely as they No, work. true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the high-pressure uh, yeah, r- pressure world of being CEO of, a, of a, one of the biggest yeah. companies in the world, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Ray and I have never had a fight either. We've never had a disagreement, never had an argument, never had a fight in the 10 years that we've been recording shows together. It's great. Like he's, it's just because Ray just always agrees with you. Well, that's yeah, yeah. like you. <laughs> when I well, screw up, this, this might be our first fight. <laughs> <laughs> when I do something stupid, you just you just giggle, and you know that's about it. You know, <laughs> you're like my Sifu. I say that it's my Sifu. My Sifu walks up to me at Kung Fu, and if I'm doing something wrong, he just looks at me, he just chuckles, and walks away. <laughs> And that's how I know I'm doing something yeah. wrong. I'm like, what? what? He goes, uh, you know, you can do it that way if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Come to think of it, the two of you have got a lot in common. <laughs> uh, you know, it's that's uh, my favorite kind of mentor is the one that doesn't sort of make me feel bad, just chuckles mm. and walks away. <laughs> well, it's a bit like raising a child. I mean, I forget now where I read it, but there's two things. To successfully raising a child, one one was unconditional love. Like the child's got to know that whatever they do, they'll still be loved. And the second thing is operate operant conditioning. So if you do something bad, you, it just gets ignored by the parent. But if you do something good, you get random praise for it, and eventually the kid learns to seek random praise for doing good mm. things and mm-hmm. and less and less bad things. A bit hard when they're smashing everything in the house. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, it is. You read that in books and I'm like, yeah, come and look after Fox for a day and then get back to me. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's something else behind that. Didn't you say there was a medical reason behind that? Yeah. Yeah. One of many reasons of many. behind that. <laughs> I don't know. 
You're right. It's his well, mother's it's... child. That's the reason. Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Her fault, right. <laughs> not fault. I'm not casting blame. I'm just saying it's DNA, man. It's, it's just genetics. Anyway, oh, mean, more from I mean, he he worked out his genetics, and ever since he's been throwing tantrums and breaking things in the house. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, back to Warren. Our goal at Berkshire is simple: we want to own either all or a portion of businesses that enjoy good economics that are fundamental and enduring. Within capitalism, some businesses will flourish for a very long time, while others will prove to be sinkholes. It's harder than you would think to predict which will be the winners and the losers. And those who tell you they know the answer are usually either self-delusional or snake oil salesmen. (laughs) (laughs) I I like that. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. We buy companies because we think their fundamentals look good and sometimes they go south and that's Mm -hmm. just the way it is. Yeah, it's, it's... I think Warren's always said it's a probabilistic exercise. You hope to get slightly more right than you get wrong, mm. but it's it's impossible to predict. Mm. Do you want to do one for one here? You got some quotes? I like. Yeah, I do. I've got mm. quite a lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were talking before about Warren's ability to distill things into good prose, and one of the concepts I liked about this letter was he was talking about his sister, Bertie. And I guess mm-hmm. using her as a proxy for one of the investors, long-term investors in Berkshire Hathaway. So his mm. sister Bertie's been along as an investor for a very long time. And, and Warren says in the letter, Bertie, like most of you, understands many accounting terms, but she is not ready for a CPA exam. She follows business news, reading four newspapers daily, but doesn't consider herself an economic expert. She is sensible, very sensible, instinctively knowing that pundits should always be ignored. After all, if she could reliably predict tomorrow's winners, would she freely share her valuable insights and thereby increase competitive buying? That would be like finding gold and then handing out a map to the neighbours showing its location. Although that's exactly what he's been doing for 60 years. I don't think he has. That's, I think that's the distinction. I think what he's saying there is don't trust a stock tipper, but he's saying, but he's been teaching value investing the whole time and saying, you know, I'm not giving you tips. He's never come out with a stock tip in his life. But he mm. said, this is how I do it. I think that's a bit different. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's a fair distinction, yeah. He's teaching a methodology but not giving you tips. Yeah. And that was, look, when I started QAV, I got so much feedback from my friends and colleagues saying, why are you giving away your secrets or why are you, you know? And um, I think, it, you know, I came to the same conclusion. I'm not giving away my secrets. I'm teaching people how to invest for themselves and it's up to them what they buy and sell. And now you're starting to question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, we've had that discussion in the survey about whether we're you're buying at the same time and selling at the same time. It doesn't appear to be the case, but mm. we may have to look at that again in the future. Keep an eye on it. Mm. In 1863, Hugh McCulloch, the first comptroller of the United States, sent a letter to all national banks. His instructions included this warning, never deal with a rascal under the expectation that you can prevent him from cheating you. (laughs) I like that. And then he goes on to say that, you know, he and Charlie tried to follow that uh, philosophy and they've they've been tricked a couple of times because it's Mm. hard to tell who the Mm. bullshit artists are, but uh, I like that. Never... (laughs) 
just if you know someone's a rascal, though, don't think you're gonna. You know, why, why, why walk into the lion's den? Like you know, I say this to my boys all the time. Like if they do business with someone and then get a sense that that person is not trustworthy. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like real estate agents. Yep, I just had that same thought. <laughs> <laughs> and if somebody tells you that they're bullshitting about something to somebody else, yeah, as part of their standard business practice, why would you trust them to be honest with you? Yeah, no, I agree. I remember a boss. Yeah, I remember a boss of mine or a business partner slash boss years ago, like working with him and seeing him just lying and cheating to suppliers and customers. Yeah. And then you go, okay, well, obviously you're going to be doing that to me as well, right? That's your character. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I had the same same thing with issue with the boss once and came to the same conclusion. It's just not worth working with them. Yeah, if you can, you know. Avoid if you can, yeah. Sometimes. And, yeah. Um, and Buffett in the past has said things like, you know, <clears throat> consider, consider the fact that whatever you do today might be on the front page of the newspaper tomorrow. So... Yeah, you know, keep reputations uh, take a lifetime to gain and a day to lose. Yeah, <clears throat> and I, I mean, life's just too short to deal with idiots and yeah, true assholes too. Yeah. Like that's why you and I got out of the corporate workforce yeah. in the first place, right? <laughs> well, that was the question <laughs> I had too. I wonder how many banks out there if they got rid of all the rascals. I wonder how mm. big they'd be. <laughs> I wonder who's mm. left. Wouldn't yeah, be well, a whole that gets. Lot. Gets back to the psychopath epidemic in a way, too. That's right. All right, your turn. Uh, Yeah, so I I won't go through it all, but Warren does his usual um, rant about uh, general accounting principles and how what they publish as their net income for the core, there isn't really the net income because it includes the unrealized gains in their um, investments. and he does this every year, and but then he goes on to to talk about his what they call operating earnings. So it's their share of the profits, basically based on their equity holdings. And you know he says that in twenty twenty one they made twenty point twenty seven point six billion, in twenty twenty two thirty point nine billion and thirty seven point four billion last year. So it's it's going up under his under his version of the accounting standards. But I think I've read the same discussion in every letter that Warren Buffett's ever written. And given that he is one of the wealthiest men in America and the CEO of one of the biggest companies, if not the biggest, why isn't he lobbying for the accounting standards to change? Why, why does he just keep rowing against this every year? If he thinks he has to state his earnings in a different way every year and his earnings are misstated, why not go to the SEC or whoever looks after it and say, hey, guys, this isn't working? Even if you have to give me a carve out because I'm an investment company, let's, let's, get, it, let's get it right. Why isn't the SEC yeah. <laughs> going, if Warren thinks we've got this wrong, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we need to rethink it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's just a strange mm. circumstance, I think. Well, maybe that ties in with this next quote I've got. He says, Berkshire's ability to immediately respond to market seizures with both huge sums and certainty of performance may offer us an occasional large-scale opportunity. Though the stock market is massively larger than it was in our early years, today's active participants are neither more emotionally stable nor better taught than when I was in school. For whatever reasons, markets now exhibit far more casino-like behaviour than they did when I was young. The casino now resides in many homes and daily tempts the occupants. One fact of financial life should never be forgotten. 
Wall Street, to use the term in its figurative sense, would like its customers to make money, but what truly causes its denizens' juices to flow is feverish activity. At such times, whatever foolishness can be marketed will be vigorously marketed, (laughs) not by everyone, but always by someone. Occasionally, the scene turns ugly. The politicians then become enraged. The most flagrant perpetrators of misdeeds slip away, rich and unpunished, and your friend next door becomes bewildered, poorer, and sometimes vengeful. Money, he learns, has trumped morality. That always fascinates me when one of the richest guys and most successful investors in America sounds like a Marxist. He sounds like a he sounds like a lefty. Yep, the yeah. rich the rich slip away unpunished. It's all marketing and no one knows what, the, you know, it's more casino-like behavior than ever. You know, this is coming from Warren Buffett. I know. I wouldn't be surprised if I read that on the Chomsky subreddit, you know. It's, right, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I've always liked about him. And he's always been fairly progressive for a Republican. Um, but, but yeah, and he's- He's, he's exactly, a Republican? Yeah. A moderate he's a Democrat. No, oh. I thought he was a moderate Republican. Yeah. He Gates was, is um, a Democrat, I think. Yeah, okay, possibly. Because he was um, an advisor to Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was California State Governor on financial issues. And his father was an advisor to Obama too, though. Oh, was he? Okay. And his father was a Republican senator. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure he's Republican. Not not that it matters. He's moderate um, in many ways. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he's dead right again. And that's he's he's actually making a really interesting point, and that is that just like you and I, that the sort of what used to be the realm of investment bankers and fund managers is now available to households to invest um, with a fair fair degree of information to back up their decisions. And so people still have to be careful and, and not be tempted because they have access to the, the stock market much more easily. They can do it online themselves for a very cheap cost, um, mm-hmm. not to treat it like a casino. And, of course, we've seen that. We've spoken about it on the show during COVID when people had access to their super and they drew it down and then spent it, um, you know, gambling Bitcoin or whatever. And after pay, yeah, he, yeah, he didn't mention Bitcoin in that in that commentary, but it just flashed out to me that that's one of the things he was talking about. And it's you know it's the same thing going on with the Magnificent Seven shares at the moment. Like, okay, I I, I fundamentally agree with the premise that AI is going to be revolutionary and that these companies are probably going to profit, uh, some of them anyway, out of the AI boom in the next few years. But how do I? How do I value a share of NVIDIA? How do I value a share of Google and mm-hmm. decide that I'm buying it at a good price based on you know some sort of scientific valuation, apart from it's going up and it was it might go up in the future? I mean, at the end of the day, if I was going to buy one of those shares, that'd probably be the only yeah. rationale I could have for it is that, it, wow, it's been going up and it might keep going up, which is... The greater casino behavior. It's, yeah. it's, it's, well, and that too, yes. Yeah. I can sell it yeah. to someone for a higher price. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, you know, logic reason really apart from you can say AI and mumble off some buzzwords about, you know, this time it's different. But at the end of the day, if you're going to put your big boy or big girl pants on and say, no, no, I'm a rational investor who invests in good quality companies when I can buy them at a discount to their intrinsic valuation, then try and apply that to the Magnificent Seven, 
Unless you know something that I don't know, it's very, very hard to put your hand on your heart yeah. and say that's what you're doing, I think. And I've had discussions even with some of our listeners in the past um, at dinners, et cetera, where they'll say things like, oh, I bought some Bitcoin yesterday. Oh, really? And, oh, and they go, oh, look, it was only 1% of my total portfolio. I just wanted to try it. I'm like, okay, well, it's good to experiment. <clears throat> but would you put 100% of your portfolio in it? And if you don't do that, if you're not going to, if you go, oh, no, it's a bit risky, well, why risk 1%? Mm. Yeah. It's just strange how the human brain works. It's like taking it's like taking a bit of money to the casino and having a splash rather than applying Riding all the principles horses. you apply for 90, the other 99% of your, um, yes, or the racetrack, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell you I had a good win on the weekend at the racetrack. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We own it. Steve Mab and I own a oh, I'm a large part of a horse, and its sister won the Blue Diamond, which is a big Group One race in Melbourne on the weekend. So um, we're hoping for some of that luck to rub off on our horse. But I backed oh, it, and yeah. the one at twenty to one, so that was a great result. <laughs> and and to be fair, when you play the horses, you have a system. Mm-hmm. You have some sort of a scientific system. Yeah. Are you? Net, is it net positive? Uh, it's probably break even over the years. Some years ago, up, right. some years ago. I, I treat it as entertainment, really. It's net positive this year for sure. And um, you could, could you could you say the same about buying Bitcoin? It's just entertainment. I could, yeah. So I, I accept that the person who spent one percent of their it's gambling, portfolio really. doing it is gambling, mm. or like, you know, I can say it's experimenting, but it's a mm. it's an experimental gamble. Okay. <laughs> And it's entertaining, so I don't have a problem with it, but I'm just saying it, you know, flip it on its head, would you put the other 99% into Bitcoin? And if you don't do that, and, then why put the one in? And you should also spend 1% of your time smoking meth and, uh, <laughs> you know, looking for a good time in all the wrong places. <laughs> just in just case experiment. It yeah, just in, yeah, case, just it in case it works. You know, yeah, it works for some people. It might work for hey, you. Well, we, don't, we don't know it doesn't. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I don't know, you know? I don't know it doesn't. No. 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 <laughs> Whose turn is it? Yours? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the, he made a good point, which is often at the crux of what he talks about. He says, this is Warren, at Berkshire, we particularly favour the rare enterprise that, that can deploy additional capital at high returns in the future. Owning only one of these companies and simply sitting tight can deliver wealth beyond, or almost beyond measure. So it's but, this idea of a high return on equity, about, so you can you can and don't pay any dividends, so you can reinvest it at a good rate of return. But what about taking your profits off the table, Warren, and rebalancing? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the that's the argument in favour of Michael Jordan. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Michael Jordan argument. Yeah. Yep. Uh, your your company also holds a, holds a cash and U.S. Treasury bill position far in excess of what conventional wisdom deems necessary. During the 2008 panic, Berkshire generated cash from operations and did not rely in any manner on commercial paper, bank lines, or debt markets. We did not predict the time of an economic paralysis, but we were always prepared for one. Extreme fiscal conservatism is a corporate pledge we make to those who have joined us in ownership of Berkshire. In most years, indeed in most decades, our caution will likely prove to be unneeded behaviour, akin to an insurance policy on a fortress-like building thought to be fireproof. But Berkshire does not want to inflict permanent financial damage. Quotational shrinkage for extended periods can't be avoided, 
on Birdie or any of the individuals who have trusted us with their savings. Berkshire is built to last. I like that. Yeah, and he's. I think you know, he, um, particularly in the last few years, he's changed his tune a bit in these letters from, hey, we've outperformed up to twice the market over the last 50 or 60 years to, hey, we're not going to go broke. And um, right. I was going to read a similar sort of quote. If you look at Berkshire Hathaway, because um, he always puts his um, his performance versus the S&P at the back. The last five years, he's underperformed. 2019, um, he, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, and again, this is his accounting, so it's this operational earnings. Uh, his, his operational earnings were 11% increase, S&P 500 accumulation index 31.5. So massive underperformance. 2020, 2.4 for Berkshire, 18.4 for S&P. 2021, pretty even, 29.6 Berkshire, 28.7 S&P. 2022, 4% versus minus 18, so they beat the market there. 2023, 15.8 versus 26.3. So still running at twice market since 1965, which is a huge achievement. But yeah. as as he says, they're a big, really big company now. It's, it's hard to deploy that cash to move the needle. So what he's doing is, as a good marketer, he's saying, but we're not going to go broke. We're... We're here, um, and uh, you know, we're we're a fortress with fire insurance as well, and we're not going to burn down and all that kind of stuff. So, interesting change of tune, I think, for Berkshire Hathaway. Mm. Well, I guess with Charlie's demise and Warren's uh, timeline, investors want to know that you know what they're investing in is going to survive yeah. the two of them too. And I think that's the that's always been the big question for me with Berkshire Hathaway. Um, as you know, I owned shares for a while, but then I sold them. I thought Warren and Charlie were getting quite old, and and I suspect that when when uh, Warren finally does go, and hopefully he's around for a long time, that Berkshire Hathaway may get taken over and broken up. Um, at least because they're sitting on a heap, heap of cash, so. You know, you get access to all that cash straight away. If you're a takeover merchant, pays down all the debt to to um, to raise capital to take over Berkshire Hathaway, and then you can decide. Well, I don't want the railway business; it's too capital intensive. I'll sell that one off, um, but I do like the insurance business. So, you know, Berkshire Hathaway could end up being three or four companies in the next ten years. Is my guess. I know that's a prediction. Yes, really? exactly. Yeah. Wow. Tell our paper. Yeah. What was that saying about the go to the phone box and ring this number and tell them the was it the blue ostrich says Eldar paper or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I mean, and it's because Warren runs the business differently to how the rest of Wall Street run businesses. That's why I named you know Fox after Bud Fox. His real name is Bud Fox Riley. <laughs> I have to start calling him Bud. Bud Fox, yeah. <laughs> okay, back to Warren. During 2023, we did not buy or sell a share of either Amex or Coke, extending our own Rip Van Winkle slumber that has now lasted well over two decades. Both companies again rewarded our inaction last year by increasing their earnings and dividends. Indeed, our share of Amex earnings in 2023 considerably exceeded the $1.3 billion cost of our long-ago purchase. The lesson from Coke and Amex, when you find a truly wonderful business, stick with it. Patience pays. 
and one wonderful business can offset the many mediocre decisions that are inevitable. Again, back to the Michael Jordan strategy. Exactly. And and the analysis that people have been telling us about their own portfolios. You know, mm-hmm. I bought 15 stocks and one of them accounted for most of the performance. That's how it goes often. Mm. Mm. Interesting that he said his share of their share of Amex earnings exceeded the cost of the share purchase all those years ago. So imagine how many times that's paid for itself. Yeah, well, I mean, I've had that happen to me once in my investing career, Monodelphus, and um, my dividend at the end was as much as what I, it was when I paid for the stock at the start. So the yield was about you know 4%, so it was a 25-bagger. So that's probably similar to Amex and Coke for these guys. Mm. Mm. I've got one more. You got anything else? Yeah, I've got a couple. Okay. Yeah. So talking about Japan, uh, additionally, Berkshire continues to hold its passive and long-term interest in five very large Japanese companies, each of which operates in a highly diversified manner, somewhat similar to the way Berkshire itself is run. We increased our holdings in all five last year after Greg Abel and I made a trip to Tokyo to talk with their management. Berkshire now owns about 9% of each of the five. Berkshire has also pledged to each company that it will not purchase shares that will take our holdings beyond 9.9%. Our cost of the five totals 1.6 trillion yen, and the year-end market value of the five was 2.9 trillion yen. However, the yen has has weakened in recent years, and our year-end unrealized gain in dollars was 61%, or $8 billion. Uh, He goes on, in certain important ways, all five companies – I hope I get the pronunciations right. Itochu, Marubini, Mitsubishi, Mitsui, and Sumitomo follow shareholder-friendly policies that are much superior to those customarily practiced in the US. Since we began our Japanese purchases, each of the five have reduced the number of its shares outstanding at attractive prices. Meanwhile, the managements of all five companies have been far less aggressive with their own compensation than is typical in the United States. Note as well that each of the five is applying only about one-third of its earnings to dividends. The large sums the five retain are used both to build their many businesses and to a lesser degree to repurchase shares. Like Bircher, the five companies are reluctant to issue shares. So there's been a lot made of Buffett's buying into Japan and a lot of people have followed him in and the market seems to be turning around and liking that in the last year or so, but uh, I think he'd been buying for a number of years, but uh, Interesting to compare and contrast the big companies in Japan to the mm. kind of problems he was just calling out before in the US. Mm. But mm. how do they retain good talent if they're not overpaying their CEOs, Tony? Yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, um, potentially it's it, there could be a Japanese language barrier. I mean, how many how many Harvard MBAs can speak Japanese? I, well, I don't know. I'm just guessing. But yeah, you're right. It's that... that that is the argument, isn't it? Why do you need to pay someone a lot of money to run your company? Mm. Oh, I'm, looking retain- at, I'm looking at you, Elon. <laughs> <laughs> the last one I've got is he's talking about um, Omaha and all of the uh, successful investors that came out of Omaha, including himself and Charlie and I think some of the other guys that are now running the 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 guy uh, guys that are coming after them i think they're from omaha originally too mm. he says so what's what's going on is it omaha's water is it omaha's air 
Is it some strange planetary phenomenon akin to that which has produced Jamaica's sprinters, Kenya's marathon runners, or Russia's chess experts? Must we wait until AI someday yields the answer to this puzzle? <laughs> Keep an open mind. Come to Omaha in May, inhale the air, drink the water, and say hi to Bertie and her good-looking daughters. Who knows? There is no downside, and in any event, you'll have a good time and meet a huge crowd of friendly people. To top things off, we will have available the new fourth edition of Poor Charlie's Almanac. Pick up a copy. Charlie's wisdom will improve your life as it has mine. Giving a plug for their upcoming annual meeting. In May, yeah. I guess, I guess Bertie's three daughters would look better and better each year as the Berkshire Hathaway shares go up. <laughs> they're, they're probably not that young, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. uh, probably about our age, Ken. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, no, Most great. He was, he was, and you were saying it's now. He was saying that it was interesting how he and how he'd met Charlie, who'd grown up in Omaha but moved away, and then Agent Jane, who runs the insurance business, spent some time in Omaha as a kid, and then Greg Abel, who is actually Buffett, uh, Greg Abel, sorry, as Buffett and Buffett came out and anointed him as the uh, the next CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, and in, in this newsletter, which I think is the first time I've seen that happen. He's always said it's going to be a, a contention and my wishes are known. So he actually named it. But, but Greg Abels, who's Canadian, also spent time in Omaha. So it, it's either there's something in the water in Omaha or whenever Warwick sees Omaha residency on the CV, he goes, must be a good bloke. Oh, hi there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. racial profiling or geographic profiling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've just got one or two more. Um, well, one more, actually. I'll, I'll cut it back. Uh, he, Warren says, beyond that, we have learned too often painfully a good deal about what types of insurance business and what sort of people to avoid. The most important lesson is that our underwriters can be thin, fat, male, female, young, old, foreign or domestic, but they can't be optimists at the office, however desirable that quality may generally be in life. <laughs> Don't want an optimist insurance policy underwriter. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> which is a, a great a great line. I think that uh, is great. Yeah. Well, and it's and always interesting we... to compare and contrast his insurance businesses to the ones that are listed in Australia. You know, yeah. he's always talking about you don't write he doesn't write business if it's going to make a loss and be very conservative on the you know the um, premiums. And I own shares in QBE, and they've been you know pretty well managed recently. Um, but they still come out, all insurance companies in Australia still come out from time to time and say, well, we didn't provide enough for these cyclones in Queensland this year or the hailstorms in wherever. Um, mm. And, you know, they use those as an excuse for some of their profit declines. But mm. they never come out and say, well, we were really pessimistic this year and we didn't write any business, which is what mm. Berkshire Hathaway has the luxury of doing, I guess. Mm. Well, we spent a lot of time on that, but we don't know how many of these we have left. And uh, yeah, good point. We want to make the most of Warren's wisdom and humor when he's still with us. And hardly recommend if people haven't gone back and read some of the past newsletters. And there are books out there which make compendiums of them. They're mm -hmm. really, really good reads. And they're all on the Berkshire Hathaway website too. They're all yeah. available, uh, accessible. All right. Mm. What else you got? I'd rather pull pork. Who are you pulling today, Tony? <laughs> uh, I'm looking at Vulcan Steel, VSL. Never heard of them. 
I wonder if they would, like greet each other in the mornings and go live long and prosper. <laughs> you would always have to. That would be part of the yeah. initiation process. It? Yeah, although it's a Kiwi company, so they might go, you know, live long and live. prosper. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, sorry they, about that, they, listeners. <laughs> are they on the buy list? Yeah, they came on. They're a new one this week, which is why I'm talking about them. And they, they're a relatively large company, so they may suit um, a lot of listeners. Uh, ADT is 351K per day, mm. so it's fairly large. Um, they're on the buy list, but um, I think they're a Josephine, so they're one to watch. And they're also a good dividend yielder and they're going ex-dividend on the 29th of February tomorrow. So, again, their price is going to be volatile after that. And I'm looking back over my fancy historical buy list sheet. This is the first time they've been on the buy list, at least since September 2021, which is when my historical buy list started. So, yeah, that's why I'm not familiar with them. They're, they're yeah, showing same. up for the first time. Why are they showing up for the first time? Uh, well, I think they've uh, they've only been listed for a couple of years. So they listed ah, okay, October twenty two, I think. It's right. a dual listing, both in New Zealand and Australia, and uh, they're expanding pretty quickly. So they had a they had a bad result, which is something to take into account, except for operating cash flow, which is why it's, I think probably hit the the buy list um, after their December numbers came through. Did you say VSL? Yeah. Not a Josephine steel. right now, looking at the Bredelator. It's you know, looking all right. Oh, okay. The, sorry. Uh, the commodity checkout steel, I think. Is oh, sorry. Steel. Yeah. Uh, okay, steak. right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yep. So, um, as I said, it's a Kiwi company. It was founded uh, quite a while ago, back in the 90s in Auckland. Uh, what else can I say about it? It's dual listed. Um List price two years ago was $7.10, and the share price I'm using is $7.58, so not a material increase over the last two years. Uh, however, since listing, it has paid approximately $2 per share in dividends, so um, the returns have been good from that side of things. Uh, Vulcan was founded in 1995 by a chap called Peter Wells in Auckland. It operates as a Key, well, they say it operates as a key link in the steel value chain between steel producers and end users. So basically, they don't smelt the stuff; they just buy it off the, the steel producers and then sell it to uh, to building sites and end users. Uh, they distribute all kinds of steel products, including carbon steel, stainless steel, engineering steel, and recently aluminium as well. Uh, they distribute steel beams to builders. They process steel plate to customer specifications, which involves cutting, folding, and drilling in their factories. They process steel coil, coil, and they do the same for stainless steel and aluminium. Uh, at the time of listing, Vulcan operated 29 sites across Australia and New Zealand. This is only two years ago. However, today they operate 69. So growth has been quick with a lot of acquisitions. Uh, they haven't gone so well recently, though. The December half-year results showed revenue was down 12% and net profit after tax was down a whopping 53%, although operating cash flow was up dramatically. So I'm guessing there's maybe some kind of write-down in their numbers. I haven't uh, had a chance to look in, in that much detail. 
To go through the numbers, though, um, using a share price of 758, which is less than consensus target, but quite well above IV1 and IV2, which is uh, IV1's 248, IV2 is $3.40. We do have the current December half results in our download, so that's a good thing. Uh, Dividend yield this uh, at the moment is 4.92%, which is probably its lowest it's been for a while, and the dividend was down this half, I guess in line with the drop in uh, net profit. Stock Doctor Financial Health and Trend is satisfactory and recovering, so we like that. Uh, I I don't score ROE, but just highlighting the fact it's very strong. It's 39.58% for this company, which is is quite amazing for um, this type of company. PE is 15.66 times, which is its highest in the last three years, so we don't score it on that. In fact, we give it a negative for that, I think, from memory. NTA is $1.01 per share, and net equity per share is $1.20. So I actually thought there'd be a bigger difference between NTA and net equity per share, given all the acquisitions that they've made recently. Mm. And um, and there certainly is a bit of a difference, but it's not not uh, that big. But um, with NEPS being $1.20, then it's nowhere near the share price of $7.58, and so we can't score it for um, a stock trading nearest book value. Dropcalf uh, is good. It's trading at 4.6 times. So that's probably why it's on our buy list. Forecast earnings per share is negative, negative 27%. So it loses a point for that. And I, again, I haven't um, been able to get more than a surface look at what's driving that, uh, whether the analysts are extrapolating from the poor half it's had or whether that, this includes in their numbers the poor half it's just had. Um, but it is a it is a concern if, for, if the forecast is for uh, a drop in earnings per share of that magnitude. Uh, the directors hold 14%, so it scores for, for that. However, the owner-founder, Peter Wells, retired from the board after it listed, so he retired in October 2022. Um, however, they have a very experienced CEO who has been in this company for a long time, um, it came up through the uh, management ranks um, and has 40 years of experience in the steel industry overall. And he owns four or five percent of the company. So, uh, and there is another board member who owns the same. So, I'm going to score it as an owner founder, even though the owner founder has retired. Uh, sentiment, as you said before, is up and it's a recent uh, three point trend line uptrend. So, it scores for that. It doesn't have consistently increasing equity. So, no score for that. So all in all, the score uh, for quality is 9 out of 16 or 56%, and the QAV score is 0.12. So first time on the buy list towards the bottom, but I just sort of highlighted as being a new stock with a high ADT. Um, in my readings on, on reviewing this stock, I sort of formed the opinion that it did have a fair few risks around it, despite um, its, its you know uh, good growth through acquisition recently. Um, number one risk was that the owner founder retired. So that, even though there's still a high amount of um, equity amongst the directors, it's, it's uh, you know we don't have the owner there anymore or the founder there anymore. Uh, it, something like sixty percent of the steel it sells goes to the construction industry, and you'd have to say that the construction industry is sluggish at the moment. Um, we're seeing low housing starts. We're seeing office buildings underutilized and therefore their values dropping. So I don't know if we're going to see many skyscrapers in the cities and the CBDs for a while. And we've seen, as we've highlighted in the last 12 months, builder bankruptcies on the housing front and construction front. So 
there's a bit of pain in the construction industry. Um, that is possibly what's flowing through to this company with its um, decrease in sales last half. Uh, and also, too, I have read some speculation that there might be a rise in interest rates in New Zealand next year. Their, their economies had had uh, a tough time, but it seems to be um, doing okay at the moment, and they might be putting the brakes on it again. So that would be a negative. Uh, on the positive side, um, it seems well run. It's growing quickly. Uh, I did think that maybe the nickel price decreasing might work in its favour. So people would have read in um, the financial press that uh, Indonesia's been flooding the market with cheap nickel, which is hurting the mines in Australia. But certainly nickel is an input into stainless steel. So it may mean that there, there's a, um, a margin boost to this company. I'm not sure where nickel figures into their pricing um, whether it goes to the smelter or whether they mix it themselves, but um, it may lower the price for stainless steel, which should drive sales for that company. So that's Vulcan uh, Vulcan Steel. I hadn't heard of it before, but interesting to do a pulled pork on it. Thank you, Tony. Obviously named after Vulcanos, the Roman god of fire and volcanoes, Vulcan. Yeah, and I did look on the management team photos to see if anyone had pointy ears as well, but they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Volcanos or Vulcan, the Roman god, uh, equated with Hephaestus, the Greek god of fire and blacksmithing, who made Achilles' armor, and I think uh, from memory made Alexander the Great's shield somehow. I think it got passed down. Maybe I think he. When he went to um, uh, Troy, he found Achilles' shield, Achilles' tomb in Troy, and he said, I'll take that, took it with him, and then he could throw it, and it would come back to him. No, that's Captain America. <laughs> but maybe he swung by New Zealand and visited Vulcan and said, I'd like a shield. <laughs> Can you yeah, yeah. roll me one off? Here are the dimensions. I'd like, I'd like a shield, please. <laughs> Vilken Steel. All right. Thank you for that. 